it's kind of funny that we're talking about Revelation 12, or when I say funny, not funny, ha-ha, but funny, kind of coincidental funny, that we're talking about Revelation, because we know that, we know that as we get to Revelation 12, and you might want to turn there now, that John is essentially seeing into heaven. So I was interested when Luke was talking about going for his run and he sort of came around the corner or whatever and there's just that big blue sky because I had a really similar experience this morning. I was just coming over the top where Anderson Park is and it was just like spread out like this big vista and the sun was up and the clouds were just kind of had that kind of tinge, that sunlit tinge. And it just felt again like heaven and earth are just not that far apart. And when I talk about heaven, not the sky so much, but the heavenly realms, the spiritual realms that... Uh, the Bible tells us actually exists. It just felt like really close for a moment. And I think that's what Revelation actually does. It really cuts away a lot of the barriers and obstacles and obstructions to seeing things as they really are, to seeing things as God sees them. And again, I, I warn you, um, as my brothers and sisters, you really need your five-point safety harnesses on when you read Revelation because it is unrelenting. It's unrelentingly in your face, isn't it? I mean, it just smashes you. I mean, last, last or a few weeks ago when I talked about that $250 million mansion and we just held it up to the Revelation test. Do you remember that? It was the most expensive mansion in America. It had its own antique car collection in the basement along with a driver and a maintainer. They had their own butlers. They had their pool. They had the, the video screen that could come up out of the pool, waterproof, and you could actually watch it. And it was worth a quarter of a billion dollars. And we said, well, let's hold that up to the judgments that are coming in Revelation. Will it save that person? No. And, you know, we've had uh, Rudgy bring to us again the bittersweet nature of Revelation, the bittersweet nature of the scroll. Remember, he was told to eat the scroll and when he ate it, it was sweet, it was bitter to his mouth. It's sweet because God is once and for all finally dealing with all evil in the world. But if you don't come across from the side of evil and onto his side, then you are going to be lost when all that evil is pushed aside as well. So there's a bittersweet kind of thing to it. And of course, last week uh, at Easter time, Ben took us through the songs of the elders. And again, I encourage you to go back and listen to these sermons if you haven't already. Go back into Revelation. Um, But the songs of the elders were all about the worthiness of the lamb and of the lion. Because we don't just have a God who roars like a lion, but he bleeds like a lamb. That That is the big difference if you didn't have the picture of the lamb, God wouldn't look that much different to uh, all the gods of all the other religions. He would just look like a warrior kind of God. But when we get to Revelation, we get to the gospel, we see that he is a God who is willing to take the nails and to bleed for us. But he is still all powerful. That's the paradox of this God that we serve. And so uh, if you just want to turn, if you haven't already, to Revelation 12, 1 to 6. And I just want to start off with this part of the Lord's Prayer that we really need to take very, very seriously. It is this, deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. You know, I don't know, sometimes you can read the Lord's Prayer and it appears um, to be something perfunctory. It's like a checklist. You just go through each item. Boom, 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 boom. Um, But this is the prayer that actually, it's really the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. And he was... Um, giving them insights into what was important to him. If he wanted them to pray this, then it was important to him. So, of course, God's name being hallowed was important. His kingdom coming is so important. And revelation is his kingdom come. It's giving us a picture of what it looks like when God's kingdom finally, once and for all, overcomes and conquers the evil kingdoms of the world. 
Uh, His will be done is incredibly important. Give us this day our daily bread, indicating that this kind of prayer is to be prayed every day. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, all the Lord's prayer is important, but this part here you're going to see is particularly important. And you might go, well, why, Adrian? Why? Because when we think of the evil one, it is he, he, a malevolent force, a malevolent creature, is far worse than you can ever imagine. He's far worse than you can ever imagine. And when we think of the deliver us part of deliver us from evil, God's deliverance is far better than we can ever imagine. And that's why I want us to think carefully about deliver us from the evil one. So I put this up there, which is my Amarok looking rather sad with two flat tires from our little fencing expedition. And I just was thinking about this and I was thinking about Revelation and I was thinking about all the ways in which different scholars approach Revelation. And I'm not saying any of them are necessarily bad or, or worse or whatever. All I'm saying is that it can be very easy for us lay people to get confused by what's important and what isn't in Revelation. Okay? There's lots of detail, there's lots of insights, heavenly insights in Revelation. And if I could use my Amarok with its flat tires as a guiding metaphor, this is what I would say to you. In Revelation, do not sit on the side of a country road arguing about the stone chips on the front of the bonnet when you've got two flat tires. Because you will never get home. You will never ring. If you think the stone chips are your real problem, I'm not going to be ringing RACQ for deliverance. And you can argue about that till the cows come home. But ultimately, the two flat tires, the big issues, are what's important. And do you think God is concerned about little stone chips when there are big flat tires to deal with? I don't think so. That's a rhetorical question. So, you know, I don't want to offend anyone, but I just want you to consider what are the real issues when God gives us his word, what are the real issues? What's really going on in our hearts? And I invite you as we go through Revelation 12 and all of Revelation to constantly ask yourself, what does God want me to know? What does God want me to be concerned about in terms of the real issues in Revelation? So just a little bit of revision again. I want you to remember that Revelation is the ultimate reality check. It's the way God sees uh, things and it's full of colourful language. It's full of deep, intense, vivid language. And remember, I gave you that little kind of story to try and explain how this displays real truth. And I might just do it again because I think it's kind of helpful. But you just imagine you're in the neighbourhood and you've got a neighbour there and he's a kind fellow and he's really, uh, you know, encouraging. He appears to love his wife and his family and all that kind of stuff. And one day, though, his wife comes to you. She's upset and appears that this guy's been beating up on her. He's been sleeping around. He is the worst husband ever, but he's had this good church veneer going on. And she goes and she summarises by saying this. She says, that man, Adrian, is a pig of a man. He's a pig of a man. What she just said there, she said he's a beast of a man. And if we were to start, you know, unpacking the metaphor and arguing about what it means, you've completely missed the point. That metaphor goes straight in the head and straight down the heart, doesn't it? Do do I need to explain to you, if I just said he's a pig of a man, do I need to explain it anymore? And this is the way Revelation uh, operates. We're about to learn about a pig of a spiritual being, or in a sense, a dragon of a spiritual being, a malevolent force, a malevolent being. And that's what I mean about it being a reality check as well. We get to see the true nature of things, the way God wants us to see them. 
So um, that then leads me to this. So it's not just a book that you listen to. It's not just a book that you kind of whimsically mull over and talk about and, and then just go away unchanged. We are told three distinct times in Revelation that this is not a cutesy book to kind of mull over. It's a book to be obeyed. So Revelation 1.3, and I'm actually going to put this back up as our memory verse because I feel like it's just so important. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Take to heart literally means keep. Revelation 22.7 starts off with that and, uh, in Revelation 1 and then Revelation 22 says the same thing. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who, does anyone know what the rest of it is? Keeps the words of this prophecy. Who obeys the words of this prophecy. Revelation 22.9 then, you know, John drops down on his face before this angel because this angel is so majestic. And the, and the angel says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and the prophets and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. The ultimate form of worship is to obey God because he knows what's best for you. He loves you. And so don't come to Revelation preaching or reading without in your heart going, Lord, I want to do these words. I want to listen. I want to be changed. I don't just want to be, um, I don't know, just having it kind of flit around inside my head. And, you know, we looked at all the other churches, the Espatisipal, ESP, TSPL, Ephesus, Smyrna. You hate, you hate it when I do this, don't you? Uh, I won't ask you this time. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. Um, what's the T? Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And the reason I bring this up every time I, I preach is because this is who all this stuff, Revelation 12, Revelation 13, all the rest of it, is actually aimed at these seven churches. And so if we know who's, who it's being preached, it actually helps us to understand it a little bit. And over and over again, you'll see these key messages. Don't sell out, don't cave in. Some words from Revelation again. Remember your first love, don't sell out. Repent and do the things you did at first, don't sell out. Be faithful even to the point of death, even when it hurts. Don't cave in. These are all things that the churches were told as they're about to be told all these revelations. Um, you know, I have a few things against you. The teaching of Balaam, which was sexual perversion and idolatry. Don't sell out. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Don't cave in. And today, it's another watch out. It's another watch out so that you won't sell out or cave in. And the watch out is to do with this malevolent beast, this picture of a dragon. So let's read together. I'm going to start from verse 19 in the previous chapter, chapter 11. Um, <clears throat> and then we're going to go into verse 12. And we're just going to look at the first six verses today. And then part two after church camp will be the last part of Revelation 12. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head uh, seven diadems, which is seven crowns. His tail, in verse 4, swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And I'll just pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. From the evil one, deliver us. Why should we take this seriously? Because as we're about to see, he, the evil one, is far worse than what you think. But so too, God's deliverance is far better than what you could ever hope for or imagine. And so looking at verse 19 uh, in chapter 11 there, it says, God's temple was open. The Ark of the Covenant was seen with his temple. In, within his temple, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. A couple of, oh, about a month ago, there was this magnificent storm over Oki and it passed over here and managed to get a whole bunch of shots, which I might use in future Revelation series of specky lightning. I've never got really great specky lightning shots before. This is one, one of the ones at night. You can't see it real well up there on the screen because of the resolution, but it was literally like uh, the earth and sky and reality was being severed and there was just like this light that was starting to pour out from the heavenly places. And whenever I feel, whenever I read this kind of stuff here about a person like John in this case, seeing heaven torn open in a sense, I just kind of think of that, that moment of lightning and rumblings of thunder and you know, all that stuff. It just seems to me to be something magnificent. And what's really interesting, though, is as John's looking through that storm, in a sense, he sees this temple, the ultimate temple. And inside of it, what does he see there? He sees the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. And straight away, that gives a little bit of a clue about what's going to happen next with this woman. Um, and you would say, OK, so in the Ark, we've got the testimony. As you remember, you've got to go a little bit back in your kind of Bible knowledge and Bible history. We've got the Ark of the Testimony, as it was called, the Ten Commandments, and there are a few other things inside there. But this Ark, and it's funny that Luke was talking about it, funny again, providential, uh, coincidental or whatever. Uh, it's funny that, he, that Luke was talking about it because that Ark was a visual reminder of God's promise to his people. It was his promise that he would be there for them, that he would deliver them. It was also their part of the covenant was to obey his commandments. And again, we all know how that went. It didn't go down too well. But nonetheless, that was the original intent. The original intent was that that ark and that testimony and that covenant would seal, or sorry, not seal, would be a representation always to the people. Now, what Luke was talking about today when it was used in battle and so forth, it was almost becoming more of a fetish. It was like the ark itself had some sort of power. It had no power. But what it did have was the testimony saying, uh, for example, from Exodus 25, 21, 22, it says, you shall put the testimony there that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two angels that are on the ark of the testimony, I'll speak with you and I'll give you um, the commandments for the people of Israel. So we know from this picture, it's a very Jewish picture. It's a very Israelite picture that it's going to lead us into something to do with the people of God, with the people of Israel. 
Um, and that's what comes next. It's a beautiful picture of God's people. So this is what happens in verse uh, 1. A great sign of chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. So this is straight after the Ark of the Covenant. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. We have a guiding principle as we preach through Revelation. The guiding principle that I want to invoke here is this, that whenever we want to get an interpretation, we will take it from somewhere else within Scripture. Okay, So I ask you, where else in Scripture do we see this image and a picture of um, the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars, or maybe 11 stars, maybe giving it away? Brian, you were saying something? Joseph, exactly. So remember Joseph in Genesis, he has a dream. And remember, he sees the 11 stars and he sees the sun and the moon bowing down to him. And then we're told that that is actually his family. So that is uh, Jacob uh, and then the brothers, the other brothers. And of course, they get all angry about it. And Joseph is eventually killed and stuff. But straight away, we see there that there is a picture of Israel that is given in sense of uh, the sun, the moon and the stars. And it's interesting because when we look at this, this is also a picture of blessedness. Uh, Song of Songs says this, Who is this who looks, looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I love that language. I'm going to read that again. I love that language. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? That's about the bride in Song of Songs. And that's a lovely thing, gentlemen, to say to your bride as well. Um, like maybe it was Solomon talking to his bride. Um, but in any case, what that shows is this incredible blessedness. It's like all the radiance and the goodness of the sun, the moon and the stars belongs to this woman. It's, it's, it's a sign of blessing. So, so why is she so blessed? Why is she so special? Um, if we turn over, we can again look at what the rest of Scripture says. And what we see throughout Scripture many, many times is Israel seen as a woman, as a bride, um, as a mother. So Isaiah 54, 1 says, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst in a song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than, her, than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. And he's clearly, you can go and look at this later on for yourself, he's clearly talking about Israel as a nation. And then Isaiah 60 says, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on your arm. Again, there's this sense of mothering of a, of a female kind of uh, metaphor for the nation. A beautiful bride, a beautiful mother. And of course, Jesus himself talked about and expanding the Israel into the church the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friends who attend the bridegroom wait and listen for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine is now complete. Um, and then, of course, in Galatians is one of the most obvious. Galatians 4, the Jerusalem that above is free. This is Paul speaking. And she is our mother. So he's talking to the church at that time. And he is saying, Israel, the nation of Israel is like your mother. Um, so you have a mum nation. You, the church, have a mum nation, and it's the, um, the nation of Israel, the spiritual um, nation of Israel. And I'll just read the rest of this here because I think it's really important. He again quotes the verse I just quoted before. In verse 27, Paul says, Be glad, O barren woman, woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, 
because more of the children of the desolate woman than of her who has no husband. And then he says, now you brothers and sisters, talking to the church at Galatia, like Isaac, are children of the promise. So now you've got this picture of Israel from whom we know Jesus would come, from the apostles would come and so forth, and from whom therefore the church would come. And they are, and they are seen as a mother. And you know, many would say and talk about the fatherland, or we can talk about the motherland. We can talk about Israel as the motherland in a sense. I'm talking about the historical Israel, the, the spiritual Israel as well. And because, again, she's depicted as clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12, 12 stars, she is special. She is favoured. She is favoured by God. So why is she so special? Why is Israel so special? Is it because of the great and powerful things they have accomplished? No. Galatians 3.8 tells us the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, and he said this, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So just bear with me. I know we've got to go back into history a little bit. Bear with me. Um, in, all, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So, well, how will they be blessed? How will they be blessed? Because this is really important for you guys sitting here in 2017. And it will also tie into why this creature, this evil one, is far worse than what you think and why God's deliverance is far better than what you think. And so Galatians 3.16 says, The promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring or seed, so his descendants, it does not say and to offsprings as in or seeds plural. It actually, and Paul picks up on just the tiniest little inference in the text. It's not plural, uh, plural it's singular when God says he's going to bless the seed. And then he picks up on that and he says, this is Jesus. The nations are going to be blessed because Israel will eventually bring Jesus. And if you trace out Israel, Israel, uh, Israel, uh, Israeli history, Jewish history, beginning in Genesis, you will see God makes a promise about the woman, the seed of the woman striking the serpent's head and the serpent bruising the, the heel. That's seen as the proto-evangelion, the early gospel. And then if you go all the way through, which is what we're going to do very quickly here, you will see time and time again, God's intent to use Israel to bring Jesus into the world. That's why she's highly favoured. And I just want you to know this. You might think, if they are the chosen people, that you can't be chosen. And I just want to say no to that. Because over and over again, we are told that if we will put our trust in this living Lord Jesus, who is the blessing of all nations, he will take us into oneness with him. And in so much as we then have oneness with him, we become just as chosen as he is. And that is the greatest hope that this whole generation has, that anyone at any time can also be favoured, just like the woman. You too can be clothed with the sun and the stars and the moon in the sense of that metaphorical kind of blessing image. And the ultimate blessing, because your ultimate problem is death, the ultimate blessing which we sung about in the songs before is resurrection, sorry, is death. And the ultimate solution is resurrection, ultimate deliverance. But throughout history, there has been hateful opposition to this blessing. It hasn't been 
just in and of itself hateful opposition to Israel or to other nations or to what people do against each other. It is hateful opposition to God's plan to save and to deliver. So I want you to picture this scene with me. Okay. It's uh, John and he sees this scene in verse 2 in 3D kind of surround sound. Vivid technicolor. The heavens are a screen. It might be the sky. We don't, we're not really sure. And this is, what, uh, this is what it says. It says, the woman was pregnant and was crying out. That means she was screaming, okay? She was screaming in pain and the agony of giving birth. Um, now, hashtag kind of blown away. This baby is vulnerable. This woman is incredibly vulnerable in that moment. I mean, if you saw that picture, I mean, people who've had babies or have, not me, of course, uh, but if you've experienced that, I think that is probably the most vulnerable a woman can be. All her energy, all her strength is just focused in on and being drained uh, or or being um, routed to bringing this baby into the world. She she cannot defend herself. Um, She is incredibly vulnerable. And so what we're seeing here is this awesome, deep, vibrant metaphor of Israel as a nation bringing forth the woman, bringing forth uh, Jesus, and then Jesus and the woman incredibly vulnerable. Now make no mistake, Jesus as that man-child is still God. But in that moment, he is also a child, a baby. So you're God that we love and we sing about. And someone was just talking about this the other day, Luke was. It ties in so well that, yeah, he's magnificent. He's in control of the cosmos, but he's also made himself vulnerable, made himself to be a child. And this dragon, this dragon knew that. The evil one knew that. So then we see in verse three, another sign appears in heaven. It's a great red dragon. Later on, we're told it is Satan. It is the devil, the, the ancient serpent. He has seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems. That is all to do with national power. We'll talk more about that next, uh, next uh, week or the, the week after. So he has, in a sense, the nations on his side, the power of the nations. And his tail sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to earth. Most scholars take that to mean fallen angels. So he has an army as well. And look, look at what the dragon does. Look what the dragon does with this great hope of humanity. The only hope for humanity, after humanity has fallen and sinned, and now God makes himself vulnerable, he is going to live as a man, he's going to die as a man. That's what we just learned about last Easter. He's going to be resurrected. Look at what the dragon wants to do. This is why it's far worse than we can imagine. And I want you to picture, I want you to picture this with me. I want you to go there with me. Imagine the screams of the woman. Imagine like her posture. Imagine the dragon, and all he wants to do is devour that child. And he, he, he approaches in that moment of vulnerability and he wants to destroy that child. There is nothing sweet or nice or cool or trendy about Satan. Nothing. He is a brutal, hungry dragon. And what we see throughout biblical history, and I encourage you, like, if, if you're really serious about following God and you're really serious about um, being alert to this enemy 
and being thankful for God's incredible deliverance. And when I give you each of these little snippets from the Old Testament, why not just maybe jot them down or um, make a little note on your phone or whatever and then go back and look at the stories yourself and read the stories yourself. But what I want to point out as I go through this is that the dragon standing before the woman is a picture of the dragon's intent all through history. Like I said, verse 9 tells us that he is Satan, the ancient serpent, the devil. And his true nature is that of a dragon before a helpless, vulnerable, labour pain weakened, screaming woman. That dragon has been trying to devour the baby, the man-child, the hope of nations for all of humankind's existence. It starts in the garden. Genesis 3, verse 1, The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? That is the serpent, the dragon, already beginning to devour humankind. He devours in that moment our immortality, our blessed immortality. It is destroyed and gone. And he plays a key role in it. And that's his intent from the start, that he would deceive us, his murderous kind of ways, like because then we're all murdered, essentially, we lose our immortality. It's always hand in glove with deceit. And then we fast forward and, you know, you've got Cain and Abel and Cain is bringing a kind of displeasing sacrifice to God. It's not by faith. It's not by trusting in God. Um, Abel, on the other hand, he trusts in God and he brings a pleasing sacrifice. It's all about their heart state. It's not about their actions so much. And then Cain begins to uh, get angry and God comes to him and says, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. It's the same kind of sense. It's the same kind of idea of the, the dragon crouching, ready to devour. Yep, Satan's not actually mentioned here, but we know that if he is the one that leads all mankind astray, that's how he's uh, depicted in the Bible, then he also leads Cain astray. And that's how he works. I encourage you to go back to our Know Your Enemy series and have a bit of a listen to that. That's how he works there. He works hand in hand with your sinful desires, your short-term kind of desires that bring destruction and damage to you and to your relationships and to everyone else. He works with those. And what's the result? Abel is clubbed down in the field by Cain. It's a dragon again. And then we fast forward into Exodus. Isn't it interesting that the Israelite people are growing and being blessed? Somewhere within there is the seed that will bring Jesus to the world. They are the ancestors of Jesus. And what does Pharaoh do? Do you remember what he does? Kills who? He kills all the firstborn. He says to the, the midwives, kill the firstborn. And these midwives are probably in charge of a whole heap of other midwives as well. And that's his directive. Kill all the firstborn. Now, if he has succeeded, he wipes out Israel, essentially, and Jesus will never come. Humanly speaking, Jesus will never arrive. It's the dragon again. The dragon seeking to devour that boy, that child. If he'd succeeded, no Jesus. Here's a part of the Christmas story that we don't often talk about. Um, it's an early version of the Christmas story. If the Christmas story is about Jesus being born, then there's a young king called Joash and he loses all of his brothers. Do you know why? This is from 2 Kings 11, 
There's a woman called Athaliah. She is the only queen that we know of, of Judah. She's the only one. And she is a Baal-worshipping, terrible, terrible woman. Um, And when her own son is killed on the throne, she proceeds to try and wipe out the whole royal throne and only one survives, Joash. Only one. Again, that is the dragon, the dragon seeking to devour, seeking to wipe out the line of Jesus that would bring Jesus as a blessing to the world. You can read about that in 2 Kings 11. And of course, fast forwarding into the Christmas story as we know, and the reason I relate it to the Christmas story is because without that happening, without uh, God delivering Joash, there is no Christmas story. Um, Then Herod, and we all know the story, we often just quickly flit over this because it doesn't really fit the kind of festive feel of Christmas, but it's there nonetheless. Herod was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. If he'd succeeded, no Jesus, no hope, no hope of resurrection, no hope for your friends, no hope for your family. You're just all going into the pit, into a big dust pole, you know, just again, speaking from an earthly kind of um, perspective. So Revelation 12 shows us that we should take this evil one seriously. And you know what Jesus prays? Do you remember what Jesus prays? He says in chapter 17, of John, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So you need to consider the type of deliverance, and we're going to talk more about this next week, but he is going to protect uh, the Father, the Holy Spirit. They're going to protect us from the evil one. They're not going to take us out of the world. They're going to protect us, though, from the evil one, which straight away means that there is something far worse than death because many Christians have died. So you are not going to necessarily be delivered from death, but you are going to be delivered from the evil one. You're going to be delivered from his deceit. It will take you uh, to hell, to an internal separation from God. So we looked at the evil one in terms of what he, uh, I guess, intends for us. It is far worse than what you can ever expect. But now I want to tell you that God's deliverance is far better than we can ever imagine. So let's look at the dragon's track record. And what we will see over and over again is that God has delivered. Satan has tried for millennia to devour the hope. And for millennia, God has subverted that, has thwarted that. Over and over again, he has ensured that the hope, the message, the gospel, the Lord Jesus would come into the world and nothing will thwart that. And again, think about the vulnerable woman. Think about the child. Who can deliver them? Is it themselves? No, it is God. And we're going to learn more about that next week. And we see in verse 5 here, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. I'm not actually going to spend too much on those days, It's uh, in the Hebrew calendar, three and a half years. It's a set period of time. I'm not really sure what it signifies. It's interesting because the time of uh, deliverance further down is three and a half years or a time, time and half a time. Um, I'm not really sure what it all means, but I know that God's plan is set. There's a a schedule. Uh, It's going to go according to his sovereign decree. And I'm also interested in the fact that it does actually say days because when you 
detail a period of time in days. It tends to think about each day being important. And I kind of see here that when, they, when she's taken care of for 1,260, it's a day-by-day -day thing. It's a day-by-day -day thing. And often in Revelation, what you'll see, don't look at it now, but look at it, look at it up later, you'll see that when it uses months or uh, time, time and half a time, it's generally talking about judgment and stuff. It's almost like it's saying, again, um, it's not going to be as long as you think kind of thing. You know what I mean? Anyway, don't, again, don't go building heaps of doctrines on that, but just a couple of comments. And what I want to say here is that when you think about the vulnerable woman, the vulnerable child, that is you. You, you, are like, you have no real power. Next week, we're going to talk about King Saul's armour. Your only deliverance is in the Lord Jesus. Your only deliverance is in God and his plan. It won't be in your superannuation plan. It won't be in your health insurance. There's no security firm you can hire to protect you from death, ultimate death. Your one and only hope is God and his son. And that's how it's always been. That's how it's always been throughout humanity. Adam and Eve's only hope was deliverance by God. The Israelites' only hope was deliverance by God. Our only hope is deliverance by God. The, the only hope of your friends and your family is deliverance by God. You know, Abraham and Sarah in the desert, in the wilderness. They're sustained by God. They go to Egypt. Abraham gets all messed up and he decides he's going to let his wife go into basically um, Pharaoh's harem. Again, not part of God's plan. Would have wrecked God's plan, humanly speaking. And so God steps in and delivers. Pharaoh's scared. He won't, he won't sleep with Sarah. That's God's deliverance, again, from the dragon. And that is so that one day, the one who would save the world, who would rightfully rule over the world, that's what verse 5 refers to, would actually come and fulfill his mandate. As it says in verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. So this heavenly lady, this, this kind of metaphor for Israel, gives birth to this king. And it's interesting because rule is actually the word for shepherd. So you can easily put um, shepherd there. And I love that because what that means is this king is not an authoritarian king in the sense of being distant and being like this big, all-powerful, unapproachable king. He's a shepherd. The difference between a shepherd king and a normal king is that a shepherd king will be close to his people. And so when it says that he will rule with an iron scepter, he will rule over evil. He will destroy evil. He will not compromise with evil at all. But then he will be a shepherd, a shepherd king. Again, it's this picture of the lion and the lamb. So many metaphors, absolute power, absolute love. I love the way Micah puts it. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Though you're small amongst the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd, sorry, verse 3. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Again, that's, that's a picture of Israel as a, as a mother bringing forth the Messiah. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord of his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So I just, I've just read that and most of you have not listened. I just know. When I mean listen, like head, heart, listen, okay? So I just want you to imagine for a moment all the nations, uh, the United States of America, the African nations, the Asian nations, all their leaders, all their people that... The Chinese peasant that right now is just tilling the earth. 
the, the African mother that's dying from AIDS, uh, the Asian woman that is being, uh, has been sold into a, a life of prostitution. I want you to think of uh, the Russian nations. In bars, men perhaps drinking vodka. I hope that's not a stereotype. What this is saying is that each of those people have an opportunity to bend the knee, to ask the Lord Jesus to to forgive them. To follow him for the rest of their lives. And their destiny is this. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Will you, will you take that up as a, as a calling? Like here in Toowoomba, as we next week hear about hospitality and so forth, will you take that up as a calling, like an honourable, noble calling, like a serious calling, not, not a kind of secondary or third calling, a primary calling upon your lives to live that, to show what it looks like as God's kingdom people and to speak it and to pray for people that they too will know this peace. They so need it. They so need it because there is this dragon that just wants to devour them. Do you care? I don't want to guilt trip you. If you don't care, you can't conjure it up within yourself. All you can do is go away from here and go, Lord, I want a heart that cares. Give me that heart. And settle for nothing less. He will rule and shepherd. Jesus, in a sense of the early forms of his, you know, of his ancestors and stuff, were delivered by God. Remember the story of Pharaoh, who, the Exodus? We'll learn more about that next week. Delivered. God delivered them. Joash delivered. He even delivered Jesus. And we've heard again about the resurrection, but Jesus was even delivered in the, in, the, in the desert. Yes, Jesus was God. He was all powerful, but he chose to live as a man. He chose to show us what it is to depend on God and on his strength. We're told that angels come and tend to him in the desert there when he's tempted by the, Satan, by the dragon. And ultimately, you can just imagine that scene in the tomb. I can imagine almost spiritually, in a spiritual place, as that dragon just like... Um, Especially in, the, especially in the trial, just, I've got you now. I've got you now. I've got you, Jesus. Look at you and your silly plan. Bloodied up. Look, they're spitting on him now. That's me. I like that one. I put that one in there myself. Slapping him, ripping the clothes off him. Take the time with that nail. Take the time with it. Just slowly. I want him to squirm. I want him to scream. I want him to die, but slowly. You can imagine the dragon, can't you? You can imagine Satan, the evil one, and then into the tomb, that still, cold corpse goes. Everyone has abandoned him except for just a few. He is alone. The body is silent. The tomb is silent. And the dragon departs with glee, thinking that he has finally devoured the man-child, devoured the hope of nations, 
devoured your hope. And three days later, (laughs) three days later, and we'll hear about this next week, that tomb bursts open. The effects like just ricochet throughout the universe into heaven and Satan loses his place in heaven and he's smashed down. He no longer can accuse anyone, anyone that is in Jesus, because Jesus has paid their debt. Jesus has paid your debt. There, no one can come to you and say, well, this, this and this has happened. You've done this. And this. You're absolutely right. It probably has happened. However, Jesus has paid that debt. He has lived. He has thwarted the plans of the dragon. I just find that magnificent. How much more will he deliver all who call on him? That's what the Bible says. Just all you have to do is call on him. Call on him for deliverance. I said at the start, let's be attendant to the real problem, the real issues in Revelation. Don't argue about stone chips. Your real problem is this malevolent dragon. And most of the arguments we have uh, in churches today are stirred up by this malevolent beast who wants us to, as Paul says in Galatians, bite and devour one another. Some of you have been concerned with the minutiae of Revelation. We need to be concerned about this malevolent threat. If we have to argue, let's argue about how we can best be aware of the dragon and how we can most glory in God's deliverance and how we can best serve the people that God has put us here. You are a priesthood. That's what, that's what Revelation tells us, Revelation 5, I think it is. You are a priesthood. Who are you priests for? This is what we learned in the baptism lessons just recently. Who are you priests for? You're not priests for other people, as in, sorry, other Christians. You are priests for the world. You are mediators and intercessors for the world to serve them so that they might know the shepherding rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you serve and help these people? How can you serve and help God's people? Like I said, we'll spend more time next week. And I just want to again say, do not sell out. Do not cave in. And I wanted to finish with this psalm, Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. Don't, don't put your hope, don't put your hope in your super. Don't put your hope in your nice car. Don't put your hope in your house. Don't put your hope in Australian society. It can't save you. I've been in many hospitals with many old people, um, seen you know, as, they, as, they, as they get to the twilight of the years. There's nothing that can save them except the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you are not there. Well, most of you are not there, thankfully, but you will be. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all her sins. I said every sermon in 2017 I would finish with a reality check, uh, and I intend to do that. And so... The reality check, as I said, will be me reading, sorry, asking a question and then reading Matthew 7, 24. The question is this, why did the house on the sand fall flat? Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Those those streams flowing, that idea of like um, 
a deathly threat, judgment and so forth. That's what we're seeing in Revelation. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. The difference between the man who built his house on the rock and built his house on the sand is a difference of what they did and didn't do. Your heart can only be changed by the Lord Jesus, but it is a heart that will then do something. And if you see that you aren't doing what God wants you to do and deep down inside your heart you know that's going on, then you need to pray and just ask the Lord to change your heart, to give you the strength, to change these behaviours, to ask for a caring, loving heart like we heard about Paul had for the church. That is the ultimate reality check. So I thought we'd finish with a prayer. It's a famous prayer. It's a well-known prayer. And I thought we would pray it together. It's the Lord's Prayer or, in fact, the Disciples' Prayer. Um, Let's read it together. It's up on the screen and then we'll be having a time of communion together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. I invite you to take some time to pray and then come forward, uh, partake of the bread and the drink. We'll hold the drink until um, later so we can um, drink it together. Father, I thank you that Satan couldn't thwart your good and noble plan for humanity. I thank you that there is a hope for every single one of the 7 billion people on this planet. From China to India to Africa to the United States to Russia to scientists in Antarctica, explorers, there is a great hope, a grand hope, It's the hope of the gospel. It's the hope of deliverance by the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to follow you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls. We want to hold nothing back. Oh, Father, empower us with your Holy Spirit so that we will not sell out, not cave in. Oh, Father, deliver us from the evil one. And Father, as we eat and drink today, we remember you. We remember you, our great deliverer, who died for us, who made himself vulnerable for us and now rules. And we look forward to your kingdom. We look forward to your kingdom of peace for all the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to come forward in your own time.